We have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to keep going through the Sermon on the Mount until we get through the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we're going to finish chapter 6, though, so that'll make us two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. So that's good. And to kick this one off, as we're still working through chapter 6, what would you say is the purpose of the spiritual life? What is the purpose of the spiritual life? If you had to come up with a word, you know, what is it? What's your goal? I mean, you're here, so you're trying to work the spiritual life. You're trying to move yourself down that path. What's your goal? What is it that you hope to obtain? What is it? A relationship with our Father? Unity. Unity? What's that? God's peace. God's peace. Oh, I, these are all great. Any others? Meaning. Absolutely. Purpose. Purpose. Love, redemption, salvation. We could go on and on and on with the things that we want. And maybe you guys all said that today because that's the way you're feeling. And if I ask you next week, it'll be something different, right? Because it is sort of a moving Nina says no, but, you know, that's Nina. <laughs> what did Jesus say was the goal of the spiritual life? Because he did say freedom. Freedom was the goal of the spiritual life. In John 8.32, he says, if you continue in my word, you know, in other words, if you live as I live and love as I love and relate as I relate, then you are my disciples. You are really my followers, my Talmidim, those who are trying to imprint me on themselves, willing to lose their own identity in favor of taking on the identity of God. If you continue in my word, you are my Talmidim, my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We don't often think of freedom as being the goal of the spiritual life. But if you think about it, freedom contains everything else that you just said. In fact, the only way that you will ever experience everything else that you just said is if you're truly free. Because as long as you're bound by fear, as long as you're dealing with the obsessions and the compulsions and everything that goes along with the fear mentality, there is no way that you're going to experience the peace, the unity, the relationship, the love. This is what Jesus knows. He gets right down to the heart of the matter. He's incisive. He cuts all the way down to the bone of things. Now, we have to talk a little bit about freedom because freedom means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And what is freedom really? How do you know if you're free of something? How do you know if something is free? This is a question. These are the kind of questions I ask. If you stepped inside my brain, it would be noisy in there. Let me read a couple of paragraphs from The Fifth Way, the book that I wrote a few years ago, and see if we can start to hone in and get a clear definition of what we mean by freedom, because it's going to be important if this is really our goal. So become very still for a moment. Quiet yourself and gently become aware of your breathing. Feel the rise and the fall, the filling and the emptying. Silent, smooth, effortless. Until the moment these words called your attention to it, one of your most critical life functions went on completely unnoticed. Unless there was some difficulty, asthma, congestion, perhaps, 
that caused you to be aware of it. You were as conscious of your breathing as you are of your hair growing, as it should be. Even in sleep, your body continues to breathe. You don't have to think about it. It just happens. Under normal circumstances, you don't have to plan for it, make time for it, worry about it, fight for it. And unless you're a scuba diver, scuba diver, you don't have to pay for it either. God told Adam and Eve that they would have to work for their food, and almost every waking moment of the lives of most creatures on earth is consumed with obtaining consumables. We spend our lives thinking about, planning for, preparing, budgeting, and paying for our food. Food is certainly not free, especially if you've been in a grocery store lately, right? But breathing our air was free in the garden, and it is still today, at least for the moment. In fact, that's how we know something is really free. If we don't have to think, plan, worry, budget, pay, or fight for something, it's free. It's free precisely because it's free from all those actions. The things from which we are the most free, the most liberated, are those things we think about the least. I want you to think about that for a second. You may or may not agree but keep thinking about it. The things from which we are most free, the most liberated, are those things we think about the least. Conversely, the more we think or worry about something, the more that thing imprisons us, owns us, enslaves us. When you lie awake at night worrying and planning over your finances, or a big test, or a promotion, or a relationship gone sour, or even sweet, that thing owns you has you in chains. But when that thing is resolved to the point that you sleep through the night and go through your day without giving it a second thought, you are liberated. You're free, at least from that one thing. Now, you might be saying, okay, but my relationships, if they're good, I'm thinking about them. Yeah, in a good relationship, we give up our freedom in order to have that person in our life, don't we? I mean, to be completely free would be completely alone. So we give up freedom for security. We give up freedom for relationship. And it's a good trade when the relationship is good. But when it's not, and we continue to think and plan and worry, that thing really is imprisoning us. We experience something as free when we don't have to think about it. Plan, work, save, pay, fight. And most importantly, when we're not worried about it anymore. That thing is free. Does that mean that that thing really is free? Or is it just free for us? In other words, is our sense of freedom subjective and personal? Or is it objective and just a thing is free or not? If something is really free, can we still worry about it? Can we still experience it as not free? You betcha. Think about this. Is God's love free? Now you would probably say yes, right? Is God's love free? Now Jesus says yes, absolutely. But what is your experience of God's love? How much do you think about it, plan for it, work for it, worry about whether you have it or not? From a legal point of view, from the Pharisees' righteousness that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, all these works of righteousness, there was that idea that we had to work hard 
for acceptance. Work hard to be worthy of God's love. <clears throat> from a legal point of view, everything is a zero-sum game, right? If you take something from here, it has to come out from over here, and everything always adds up to zero. It's a scarcity mentality. It's a fear-based mentality. Always wondering if we're going to get enough, if there's going to be enough for us. If someone else gets it, can we still get it? Because that's the legal point of view. That's the world-based point of view. And coming from a place of need, God's love is not free. We have to work for it. We have to earn it. There's only so much to go around. And we've got to make sure that we're far enough ahead in the line that we're going to get some. But Jesus is not coming from a place of scarcity. Jesus is always coming from a place of abundance. Freedom from need. And when you are free from the need, that sense of scarcity, then you can start to see that God's love really is free. That it'll never run out. That God always has another pancake in his pocket to give you on Saturday morning. He's never going to run out. He can have an infinite number of best friends. But we have to be able to start to look from this place of abundance that Jesus is talking about. There's a, a corner that we need to turn in order for that view to start becoming real for us. God's love is free, but we are not going to experience it as free until we are free. And so really, when you think about it, freedom is worrylessness. And worrylessness is freedom. Now, how are we going to get there? Last week, we were talking about how all of those sayings in the first part of Matthew 6 worked together to try to get our minds wrapped around the idea that we are supposed to be free from conflict, the conflict of interest. The idea between treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. If we are conflicted between the two of those, if we are running around after treasures on earth that are always going to need to be replenished, where moth eats and rust eats and thieves steal, then we're always going to be on this hamster wheel. And it's going to preclude us from being able to see our treasures in heaven. But Jesus says, turn that around. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of that happens, where there's an infinite supply, where abundance reigns, where you can worry less, right? And then all else is going to be added to you. So that idea of the balancing treasures on earth, treasures in heaven, looking first and identifying with the treasures in heaven so that we can reinvigorate, make healthy the pursuit of the treasures on earth that we all need, of course. And so... If you read again Matthew 6.24, and let's go ahead and look at that really quickly, Jesus ends that, that thread that he's going to continue today again with no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And the word there for wealth is mammon, mamona which we talked about, is more than just the idea of material wealth. There's nothing wrong with material wealth. But when that material wealth is what we have come to rely on, when it has come to define us, when that becomes our obsession to the exclusion of all else, then, of course, there's something wrong. Now we're out of balance. Jesus is always talking about balance, not either or, always both and. But we need to understand what's going on here when he talks about wealth so that we don't misunderstand. And this idea of hating one or loving the other, 
hate in Aramaic, sena, the word that Jesus uses here. It can mean to love less or prefer less. Not a malicious hate, the way we normally think of hate, but simply it's not the shiniest one on your tree, right? That's all it means. We're always going to do that. If we're trying to serve two masters, if we are conflicted, if we're not integrated, then one is always going to come ahead of the other one. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Paul says in First Titus, you know, we, we always misquote it. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard that one before? That's not what he said. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. Big difference there. When money becomes our mammon, when it becomes our mammonas, when it has become the definition of who we are and everything we're going for and everything we rely on, that is the root of all the evil that follows. Whether it's covetousness, whether it's greed, obsessive, compulsive, this, that, or the other thing, everything's going to flow from that. The love of wanting that kind of elusive and illusionary security in life, storing up treasures on earth rather than in heaven. So if we were to do a translation of uh, Matthew 6.24, maybe it could go like this. You can't plow two rows at once. I like that one if you're a farmer. You can't plow two rows at once. You can't follow two paths back to unity because you're going to start worrying again if you're trying to do that, right? We've talked about this in in here before. The means that we use must match the ends that we seek. Means and ends. The means we use must match the ends we seek because the means that we use will always match the ends we produce. Jesus said this over and over again. Like breeds like. You're not going to get apples from thorn bushes, right? He would use these kinds of agricultural metaphors and, and, and word pictures to try to get us to understand Like breeds like. We can't work for unity. We can't work for freedom if we're not first unified, if we're not first free enough to be able to walk down that path. And that might sound like a catch-22 to you. I mean, it does to me. When I've got to be unified before I can work for unity, how am I supposed to do that? I've got to be free before I can find freedom? How does that work? It's not a catch-22 if you bring faith back into the picture. Faith is acting as if something is already true. Acting as if something is already yours. Even without any evidence. Even without any certainty. And in the presence of doubt that you might have. That's faith. That's biblical faith. Acting as if acting in the presence of doubt, taking those first steps, however risky they may seem, to find out that you really can survive it and there's something on the other side. Now, why is this so hard for us? Well, it's pretty obvious. We're not free enough of the worry. We're not free enough of the fear. We're not free enough of the concepts that keep us rooted in place. We're still so fearful of risk. We're paralyzed by thinking, paralyzed by planning, paralyzed by worry. It keeps us rooted in place. We keep waiting for the scene to clear before we take the first step, rather than realize that the path is made by walking on it. That's the way this works. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. 
This love of mammon, whatever assets we rely on, is a hedge for us in our fear. It is a shield. It's a wall. It creates the imagined security against the fear. But it doesn't make us free. It can't possibly make us free. Here's one that you can put on your fridge. God is freedom. We talk about God is love, but God is these things that we seek. God is love. God is forgiveness. God is redemption and salvation and healing. And God is freedom because God is perfectly free. We can't experience God. We can't experience the freedom that God is while we're paralyzed in fear, while we're still worrying. It's absolutely impossible. So how do we go about this? How do we start getting to the point that we can start taking the first steps forward and really experience, really apprehend this freedom that Jesus is talking about? He's going to give us some illustrations here. Four principles, actually, for worrylessness, all right? Or at least to worry less. (laughs) If we start right at Matthew 6.25, let's take a look. For this reason, Jesus says, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, not for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What he's basically talking about is don't worry about the treasures on earth. Those are going to take care of themselves if we are properly aligned, right? Basically, what he's telling us here is to look deeper. That's the first principle. If you've got your inserts in, in, the, in the bulletins, those principles are laid right next to the verses. He's telling us to look deeper here. Look deeper than the surface. Look deeper than just the seen or visible world. Because life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. This visible world, the, the world that we can see, is kind of like the sun. The sun rises in the morning and it obliterates, overpowers all the other stars. We just get a field of blue, right? But guess what? The stars are still there, exactly where they were before sunrise. They haven't changed. They're just hidden between a veil of blue as the sunlight comes and scatters the higher frequencies across the atmosphere. But the stars are still right there. The unseen world that Jesus is trying to get us to to grab onto, to, to really see heaven, if you will, the unity of heaven, is just as real and just as present as the stars are, even though the sun has risen. It's our focus on the seen world, on the material world. It's our reliance on, it's our worry over that obliterates the unseen world just like the sun obliterates the stars. But if we can work on setting the sun with our contemplative practice, with our silence, with our stillness, with our awareness, if we can start to set the obsession over the seen world, the material world, the treasures on earth, then the unseen world comes out like the stars at dusk. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us to keep the balance, to keep the perspective. As long as we're breathing here, we're going to need the things of the earth. That's survival. It keeps us breathing. 
But if we don't have that balance, if we don't have that perspective, if we don't see that the true value is in these spiritual things, these things of heaven, the things of unity, and they will reinvigorate and they will keep healthy our work for the things of the earth, then we're going to be lost. This is what he's trying to say. So this first principle, look deeper, become more aware, become more sensitive to how the constant spinning of your mind and the constant striving for the things you think you need are keeping you blind to this deeper unseen world. In Matthew 26, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? This is a Kalve Homer argument, a typical rabbinical argument. It's called light and heavy. If something is true in the light instance, how much more true is it in the heavy, right? And so this is what he's saying. If your father feeds the birds, you know, that are so, maybe flitter in and out of life, how much more worthy are you? How much of more value are you? Isn't he going to do the same for you? This is what he's trying to get across, of course. Now, birds, are they free from work? Are the birds really free from work? Have you ever watched birds, really? Birds never stop. They are constantly working. They are constantly feeding themselves. They are constantly working after consumables. Even when they're bathing, it looks like they're playing. But if they don't do that, they don't fly. If they don't keep those feathers, you know, at a certain level of oil freeness and, and preen and do the things that they can't fly. And if they can't fly, they're dead. They are constantly working always. But what they don't do is to sow or reap or gather into barns because that always points to the future. What Jesus is talking about here is for us to stay present, look deeper, become more sensitized to the invisible world, the unseen world, and stay present. Birds only exist in the present moment. That's the best their little brains can do, right? They can't conceive a past or future. They're not storing anything up. Everything is in real time. It's flowing through them, right? We are supposed to take their example. Obviously, there's a balance. We need to be able to think about past and future, but we need to balance that. Birds only exist in the present. They take no thought, which is the actual translation, the literal translation of the word for worry here, to take thought. They take no thought for any other moment except the moment that they're in. And Jesus is saying, look at them. You know? I always think of, of uh, <laughs> Jesus as having all this energy. You know, Peter, consider the birds. Consider the lilies. No, I think he'd be, Peter, look at that bird. Isn't that cool? No, I want you to think about this. That's the way I see Jesus, the first guy in the pool. You know, he's just, he's the guy with all the energy. He is so excited about what he sees around him. You know, look at those birds. Can't you see what's going on here? Can't you see how you don't really need to worry about all the things that you worry about? It doesn't mean you don't work, but there's a different quality to the work. It stays rooted in the moment and it changes everything. You know, numbers and statistics will vary, but basically 90% of what we worry about never comes to pass. You ever thought about that? And 0% of your worrying does not any good. 
And a hundred percent of your worrying destroys the present moment and the relationships that are within them. And yet we do it over and over and over. The experience of God's free love and presence is only possible in an environment of worrylessness. Now, our minds are capable of past and future, unlike the birds. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us different than the animals. That's the part of us that is created in God's image. But only in the present can we be free. Because only in the present can we intersect with our God, who is freedom. If our minds are someplace else, we're not free. We're beholden to those things. There's a quote from a movie that I wanted to read you because this has so much has to do with fear. It's our fear that keeps us rooted in worry. It's our fear that keeps us rooted in obsessive compulsive thinking. And at this moment in the movie, one character says to another, actually I think it's a father talking to a son if I remember correctly. It's been a few years now. He says, root yourself in this present moment now. Root yourself in this present moment now. Sight, sound, smell. What do you feel? Fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all just telling ourselves a story. Now, I want to put a little caveat in there, because I don't know about you, but for me, the feeling of fear is also very real. Our reaction to the danger that we see, that we process as fear, we feel that, and that's real. But how we act in the presence of that feeling is our choice. So whether you're ready with this character to say that fear is not real, that's up to you. But the choice we make is very real. So what we've talked about, you know, courage and fear and faith and doubt. Courage doesn't exist except in the presence of fear. If there's no fear, there's no courage. Courage is the ability to act in the presence of fear. Faith and doubt. If there is no doubt, there is no faith. The opposite of faith is certainty. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of doubt, in the presence of the lack of evidence, in the presence of uncertainty. That's what we need to be able to do. And Jesus is walking down this path. Look deeper. Stay present. These are the ways that you get to the point that you can take those first steps. You can actually move through this. At Matthew 6, 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? I love this one. Now, some of you might have seen a translation where, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single what, foot to his height or inch to his height? And it's like, which one is true? Once again, it's both and not either or, you know? It's interesting, but in the, in the Greek, the word that is there for uh, an hour or an inch or a foot is actually the word for forearm. 
because the basic unit of measure was a cubit. A cubit was basically from your fingertips to your elbow. That was the measure of, uh, of a cubit, which, of course, varied from person to person. So it wasn't a hard measurement, but it's what they used. It's the best they had, right, to measure things that way. And so the cubit, the forearm, is the first part of that. The second part is the stature. In Aramaic, it's stature. So in Aramaic, the idea would be that it's a cu- adding a cubit to your height, basically, or a foot to your height. But in Greek, the word is actually maturity, and that can mean either size or years. And so either one is right, but you get the idea. What is Jesus talking about here? In Luke 12, Jesus says the same line you know, in another sermon that he's doing in Luke 12, and then he has a line that comes right after that. If you can't do that which is least, why worry about the rest? It's a perfect follow-on, right? You can't add a single hour to your life. You can't add an inch to your height. And if you can't do that which is least, why are you worrying about the rest? In other words, what Jesus is talking about in this third principle is to accept your vulnerability. The basic facts of life lie outside of our control. The most basic things we can't control. How tall we are, how long we live, how fast the sun moves across our sky during the day. So if we can't control those basic things, the only thing we can do is accept them, to rest in the dependence of children of God, to rest in the vulnerability and the frailty of the human condition, not try to fight it, not try to fortify ourselves against it, that just adds the fear and adds the constant worry, the constant striving, but to say, hey, this is who I am. This is who we are. In other words, to begin to trust, to move into that Anavim spirit that we've been talking about all along. The people who realize they don't have control and that the only thing that they can ultimately count on is their God. All of their own efforts can't avail them much because they live on the margins of life, typically. Not that a rich person or a powerful person can't have an honoring spirit, but as Jesus said, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for one of these rich people to be able to understand this principle, to accept vulnerability. And then Jesus at Matthew 28, 628, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Call the right? Light and heavy. You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, those who stand outside the law, those, most importantly, who do not know our God. That's what a Gentile was. One who doesn't know our God. You know? You don't know my dad. If you knew my dad, you wouldn't worry so much, right? Don't worry then. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The lilies of the field flowers. They're not capable of work, 
I mean, you could maybe say that the whole process, you know, of turning sunlight into energy and all that is work of sort, but it's not the same kind of work that we think about. Not the same kind of work the birds are doing, right? The lilies, the flowers, they're not conscious. Well, I suppose that also depends on who you talk to. There's some people that think plants are conscious, but they're not conscious in the same way that the birds are, that we are, right? And yet they are there in this perfect state. Jesus is saying is this fourth principle. See the perfection that is around you. See how this moment is perfect in and of itself. Regardless of whatever circumstances you want to change, regardless of whatever you may see as lacking, can you just put that on hold for just a moment? Can you step outside of that bubble and see these flowers and see how this moment is perfect? See that perfection. See that perfect beauty comes from just being what they are. Nothing more, nothing less. Anything added to these flowers at that moment, anything subtracted from these flowers at that moment would only make them less than perfect. See perfection, see completion, fulfillment in the moment, and let that moment be just enough for you. As with the lilies, God has clothed us perfectly as well. And beauty, our beauty, lies in the essence of who we are. Lies in who we are in God, of course. And not in our own effort. We are not perfect and complete and fulfilled because of our effort, but of simply who we are created to be. And when we make the choice to connect with God in the moment, we complete that circuit and we are in a perfect moment. And we will experience that moment as just enough. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be subtracted. It just is. Nothing has changed out there. I still got to pay my rent. I still got to go to work in the morning. I still got to fight that boss, whatever it may be that you are thinking about and worried about. But in that moment, it's just enough. In that moment, the wolves are at bay. And in that moment, you can experience again the perfection of God's creation, the perfection of this relationship that we have with God. And then finally, at verse 33, he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. So God's kingdom is what? It is the awareness of and experience of God's presence in the moment. That that experience, that awareness is what drives you, what motivates you, what informs all your choices. That connection with God. And what is God's righteousness? It's unity. It's oneness. It is the dissolving of boundaries between us so that we see each other as part of one organism, if you will. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. What things? The treasures on earth, the things that we physically need will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Pretty true, right? Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Store your treasures in heaven 
in unity. If we do, then everything else, the treasures on earth, will be added. So, having said that, does that mean that God's going to pay my mortgage? See, that's the thing that we think about when we, we, we talk about this, things like this. We, we try to get it one for one, you know. If I do all the principles, then God's going to make sure that I am rewarded. God's, now we're back to the Pharisees again. And he, Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. No, God's not going to pay your mortgage. Sorry. It would be nice, but no. But when we become unconflicted, when we become connected and unified, with God, with God's presence, then we become empowered ourselves. We become balanced here on earth. And present to God, empowered and connected to God, things happen. When you show up, and you show up in this kind of attitude, the Anavim spirit, you are the most attractive you're ever going to be, and you will attract things in. This law of attraction, it's real in the spirit. Doors will open that you never saw coming. People will come into your life. You know what? Your mortgage will get paid if you show up and do the work that the birds do day in and day out, but with this kind of attitude, with this kind of presence. People like to work with their friends. People like to work with people who make them feel better about themselves. People like to work with the person who walks in the door and lights up the room that you can't wait to have at your party or at your workplace. This is a kingdom person. This is who Jesus was. This is why he attracted who he attracted. Yeah, the mortgage will get paid. Maybe in a way that you never saw coming. And maybe the outcome that you so richly worry about and would love right now is not going to happen in the way that you imagine it, but something else will, and it'll be even better. This is how the mortgage gets paid. This is how all things get added when we seek first kingdom. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. When we become free to be exactly who we are, free from the worry over and the working for God's love, which is already free, things happen that we can't predict. It's so hard for us to see this, to rest in this truth, because we've been taught to worry, haven't we? Since earliest childhood, haven't we been taught to worry? Haven't we been taught that nothing is free? Haven't we been taught that we got to perform for acceptance? That's the world that we live in. And so we have grown up to see ourselves as unworthy. And changing that view is everything that Jesus is about. It's what the good news is all about. He's trying to get us to change that basic view of ourselves and life and our relationship with God. Changing that view lies at the heart of freedom, the freedom that Jesus intends for us. A few years ago, I was working with someone primarily through email, but we met a few times as well. And this is someone who is really struggling because of his past, because of his upbringing, because of things that had happened in his life. He did not feel worthy. And he was a leader in church, and that just drove the knife deeper because he knew what the ideal was as an elder and a leader in the church, and he had fallen so short of that, and he was just dragging. And I sent him some materials, and we started talking, and I was trying to get what I'm telling you about this morning across to him, and he wrote me back at one point, and he said, thanks for emailing these great resources. I think they may be saving my life. My stubborn, lazy, fearful, and reluctant old man is still winning, 
trying not to finish the race. But I do see a glimmer of hope on the horizon. And even though shame and resentment and regret keep calling back, I used to say that you can't polish feces. Only it's not feces on the page. Well, maybe I'm not feces after all. And maybe there's a chance I can truly begin the process of change, real and lasting change. There is much I'm shameful of, but to be set free from a few of the things, at least, might loosen the noose and begin the course of dismantling this rope of self-loathing. See, that's the way it works. The essence of the good news, we're not feces. (laughs) We are not the product of this original sin that we imagine ourselves to be, you know? completely depraved, completely separated from God's love. Nothing can be further from the truth. You can take that one and just erase it off the books, please. It's not there in Genesis. It wasn't there in the minds of the Jews who wrote Genesis. We took a left turn at Albuquerque someplace. We are not these depraved creatures. No one is. In God's eyes, we're all clothed like the lilies of the field perfect, right here and now, even in our imperfection. And anything added to that perfect love would only make it imperfect. Resting in that truth is seeking kingdom first. Resting in that truth, trusting it just a little bit, is seeking kingdom first. Storing up treasures in heaven. And everything else in life flows from that truth. So how do we know? How do we know that we're actually becoming free? Well, when we start becoming worryless, when we start worrying less, less thinking, spinning, planning, striving, fearing, when that starts to dissipate and we start to realize that it's dissipating, that we're sleeping better, that we're not staring at the ceiling at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we start to realize that that is taking hold in us, when we can give ourselves permission to think and walk in new directions, ones that were never available to us as we were learning life as children in the church, wherever, when we can start to say right out loud what we become convinced of, not worrying what others may think or even what God may judge, Think about that. To not be afraid of God in that way. I've gotten to the point that I know that God is not going to damn me for a wrong thought in my head. It's not going to happen. Because guess what? i got all sorts of wrong thoughts in my head, and so do you. None of us here in the human condition can ever have the complete picture of theology, of God and God's nature, we're all doing the best we can with the paradigms that we set up that allow us to take those steps of faith and move more into trust. So whatever you have to deconstruct, whatever you have to pull down in your life that allows you to rest enough in this love that Jesus is talking about and step away from the legal, step away from everything that keeps you on that hamster wheel of performance, is good and it's okay 
but we have to give ourselves permission. And when you start to feel that permission, when we can stop performing for trying to earn God's love and just begin to live as if God's love is perfectly free, that it's already here, that we're already swimming in it like the atmosphere, breathing it like our air. When we can work as hard as the birds today without trying to control tomorrow, when we can be as unselfconsciously part of this moment as a flower in a field, when we can become worryless, we're free. This is how we know that we're moving in the right direction. Worrylessness is freedom. We will not experience the freedom of God. We will not experience God as freedom as long as we are carrying around this worry, this fear. As that starts to fall away, yes, we are entering kingdom. We are becoming one with God who is the freedom. And we are approaching our goal as a spiritual people. Let's pray. Father, it's foreign for us often to think of you as freedom. Even sometimes to think of you as love. But help us to see that. That every time we see freedom, every time we see love, every time we see forgiveness, we are seeing you. We're seeing a part of you acted out in human form. And the only reason that that exists in our path, in our experience, is because it comes from you, that it started with you, that you did it first, that any of this exists in our world is proof that you are here, that you are who you say you are. That's what we want, Lord. We want more and more to be identified with that, with you, with your freedom first, that will distill down to everything else that we know we need. But help us to start there, to let go of whatever we need to let go so we can take those first steps in a direction as if it is already true, so we can experience that it is and know that we know and trust what we know and become convinced of what we're convinced of. That's our prayer, Lord. Starting today, starting right now, take us there. Make us, help us to be willing to be taken there. And thank you, Lord, for every help, every empowerment along the way. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.